Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Glenn Greenwald. He writes at greenwald.substack.com and is the author of the new book, Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Glenn, how are you? I'm good, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. I wanted to start with the Afghan bounty story, the Russian bounty story in Afghanistan. Can't do a segment every time a Russia Gate story collapses because there would, it would just take too much time. But this one I thought was particularly instructive and important. We heard all summer that Russia was putting bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. It was a constant obsession. And now you know from this reporting in The New York Times, which has since been confirmed by The Wall Street Journal, which has since been confirmed by The Wall Street Journal, that not only does the president know that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths. Get this, The Washington Post is now reporting that the alleged Russian bounties to Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are believed to have resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. Like this New York Times story about a stunning U.S. intel assessment, finding that Russia secretly ordered, uh, offered Afghan militants bounties to kill U.S. troops. Vladimir Putin is paying to put bounties on the heads of American troops. The White House was warned about Russia offering bounties, actual bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He's not even there yet. He's still suggesting that the reporting about the fact that there were these bounties offered is fake. Meanwhile, your organization, The New York Times and others, are getting some fairly detailed uh, reporting about how it actually works. Despite those denials over and over, sources tell CNN that last week the U.S. even shared that intelligence with British officials as some of the British troops would have been targeted as well. Yeah, to, to say nothing of, of putting bounties on, on American troops. Um, it's unbelievable, Joy. Yeah. Public reporting that Russia had bounties on the heads of American soldiers. And you know what a bounty is? It's somebody puts a price on your head and they will pay it if you are killed. I've gone head to head with Putin and made it clear to him we're not going to take any of his stuff. He's Putin's puppy. He still refuses to even say anything to Putin about the bounty on the heads of American soldiers. And then recently it collapsed with the Biden administration saying that it has low to moderate confidence in that allegation. I'm just wondering if you can talk about the significance of this story um, the consequences that it had on geopolitics and what it tells us about how our media handles claims like this. So the first thing that struck me about the story was the timing of it. And then the second thing that struck me about it was the usage. You know, it was a fairly standard story. It was the New York Times citing anonymous intelligence officials making obviously an inflammatory claim. So standing alone, you could just critique that by saying, oh, look, the New York Times yet again is just passing along what intelligence officials tell them without evidence, without showing evidence, without indicating they've seen any to believe it's true. They're just doing stenography work. And that, you know, it's, as you said, if, if, if you were to, you know, devote yourself to every time that happens, you would do nothing else. But what made this particular story you know, of, of such importance was the fact that it was published very shortly after Trump had announced his specific plan to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the end of 2020, something he had been saying he was going to do for a while, but he had just unveiled his plan. And so I can't prove that the reason 
that those people told the New York Times that this happened was to sabotage the withdrawal plan. But obviously, they knew that that would be an, uh, uh, a predictable result. And then what really drew my attention to it further was I watched the House Armed Services Committee hearing, which I think took place in July, where the $740 billion budget for the year was approved. And the more important part, because that approval was a foregone conclusion like it always is, were the amendments that members of Congress tried to attach to the budget approval. And one of the primary ones was a an amendment sponsored by leading pro-war Democrats who formed the majority on that committee, like Ruben Gallego and Jason Crow and the chairman, Adam Smith, who are funded by Boeing and Raytheon, joined with Liz Cheney and the neocons to pass a, an amendment to defund any attempts to withdraw troops, not just from Afghanistan, but also from Germany. And one of the main arguments that they used, because it was only days before when the story was published, was, oh, the, the, the Kremlin is now paying bounties on, 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 for the lives of American servicemen and women, and we can't leave Afghanistan because to do so would be to reward Putin for his treachery. So it played a major role in the efforts by this bipartisan pro-war coalition to block withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was never any evidence for it. And as you know, what's so notable is that the Biden administration has basically admitted the CIA keeps saying we have moderate confidence, but the NSA is arguing vehemently against it. They're saying, look, if this had happened, we have the Russians so covered in our, our digital surveillance that we would know about it and we don't. So we have actually no confidence or very low confidence that this is true. And they debunked their own, you know, the story that came from the intelligence community, obviously, once Trump was gone, but also when the Biden administration needed the story to go away, because now Biden wants to withdraw from Afghanistan. And so you just see how easily they manipulate these journalists and the news cycle and the dissemination of information for their own ends constantly. And I really put the blame on journalists who continue to launder whatever they say with no skepticism. You go back to that New York Times story, and again, it didn't say it was true. It said that intelligence officials said it, but from there, the entire press was off and running. You know, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal confirmed the story, meaning they talked to the same CIA people or the same sources. And from there, it became, you know, one cable segment after the next, outraged and indignant over this, you know, villainous Putin who would pay to kill American soldiers. And it just became a proven fact in our discourse. And it turns out that there's basically no evidence for it all along. And even now, I'm not sure if you saw it, but Charlie Savage, who has done some uh, incredible reporting in the past, he was one of many the many years ago, many years ago, he was one of the original reporters on this story. And I noticed over the summer that even as the conclusions of the NSA and other intelligence agencies like the Defense Intelligence Agency, even as those were being leaked and they were saying that there was no evidence for any of this, even back then there was an attempt by Charlie Savage and his colleagues at the Times to downplay what the other intelligence agencies were saying and to parrot what the CIA was was feeding them. And even now, after the Biden administration takes the side of all the doubters who are saying that there's no intelligence for this, even now, I've noticed still there's 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 effort by the Times and Charlie Savage to not acknowledge the flaws that were there from the start in their own reporting. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, I made a joke about Charlie doing great reporting years ago. He won the Pulitzer, I think, in 2006 for his work on the effects of so-called signing statements by the Bush administration that basically to nullify 
laws enacted by Congress to limit what George Bush can do in the war on terror by basically saying we won't. Um, I've known Charlie for a long time. I have respect for him as a, a reporter, not just from back then, but recently as well. But yeah, I think what happens is when you get so invested in a story like this, you obviously want to defend it even once it ends up being debunked because it's embarrassing and you feel bad. And also there's an allegiance that you have to your sources. So whoever told him this obviously is continuing to tell him that, no, this is actually, you know, a story for which there's corroborated evidence. And I think the problem becomes that they get so close to their sources that they become basically the spokesman for those sources. But, you know, also, Aaron, I think the other thing that, that happens is, you know, Charlie Savage, The New York Times, they know what they're doing. So they publish a story like this. And if you argue with Charlie about it, as I've done publicly and privately, he'll say, and I'm not going to say anything he said privately, but publicly, he'll say, look, we didn't do anything other than say the truth, which is that the CIA concluded that this happened. But he knew exactly what he was doing, which was feeding into this anti-Trump frenzy and this narrative that Trump is controlled by Putin. And he watched the rest of the media you know, talk about this as though it was proven fact and never once said, hey, guys, like, take a step back. We're not saying it's definitive. We're just saying the CIA concluded this because that made his story more important. And so he like his wash his hands of responsibility for the fact that what was injected into our discourse was something that was never true. You know, from the beginning, you had commanders on the ground in Afghanistan saying we haven't found any evidence that this has happened. I want to get to specifically to the bounties, specifically to the bounties. That is a unique, discrete piece of information that is not corroborated. You've all been briefed on it. I have too. And I am, I and the secretary and many others are taking it serious. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to find out if in fact it's true. We haven't found any evidence that this is true. So there were reasons to doubt the story all along. And yet the New York Times continues, even up to this very moment after the intelligence community has said there's only low to moderate confidence in insisting that they did nothing wrong. And it's similar to how before the election, when reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop was essentially blocked because some anonymous former official said that it might be Russian disinformation. That story is still treated as an open question. And Hunter Biden is feeding that saying that it that even the U.S. intelligence community concluded that it was Russian disinformation. I'm wondering if you can talk about that and just the standard of evidence that has been established when it comes to labeling anything Russian and then what the media response to that is. Yeah, you know, this played a really big role in I leaving The Intercept, and it got kind of overshadowed by the fact that obviously the precipitating cause was the refusal to publish my article analyzing the questions, the serious questions I believe had had been raised by the Hunter Biden documents. But what really poisoned that entire process, for me at least, was that a week earlier, The Intercept published an article by Jim Risen telling people to ignore the Hunter Biden story, that it should be viewed as a scam and a fraud. And one of the arguments, the main argument he cited in support of that view was the fact that there had been this letter issued by ex-CIA agents who hate Trump, like John Brennan, Michael Hayden, you know, the standard anti-Trump intelligence operatives who concocted Russiagate in the first place and have used their credentials to undermine Trump. So it wasn't just that The Intercept was telling me 
your article does not meet our lofty editorial standards to be able to be published. It was the fact that just a week earlier on the same topic, they published utter shit, you know, total CIA propaganda claiming that the Hunter Biden document was, quote, Russian disinformation, which contains two claims. Number one, that it comes from Russia. And number two, that the documents are fabricated, neither of which had any evidence at the time, and both of which have been discredited now. And that also became the way that Facebook t censored the story, the way Twitter justified suppressing the story, and the way media outlets justified not covering it was, look, these, it wasn't even an official U.S. intelligence agency. It was ex-CIA uh, officials. And they even said in that letter, Aaron, the, that they issued, there were 50 of them or so saying, we believe this is Russian disinformation. Even in that letter, they themselves admitted, we have no evidence that it comes from Russia, nor do we have evidence that it's disinformation. We just know Russia really well from all of our years working in the intelligence community and, in, and intuitively on a gut level, this seems like the kind of thing that the Russians typically do. And, you know, they were even more honest than the media outlets like The Intercept and many others because they admitted that there was no evidence for it. But when it ended up appearing in The Intercept and many other places, they om omitted that part. They said they didn't say these intelligence agents say it's Russian dis disinformation, but admit they have no evidence for it, which is what you would do if you were even a minimally honest or skeptical journalist. They just endorsed this, this fabricated narrative that people should ignore the revelations of the Hunter Biden documents because it was Russian disinformation. And it was amazing to me to watch, you know, after four years of falling on their faces over and over and over, repeating what the CIA told them to say about Russia, that they would just do that. But they were so desperate. You know, this is like two or three weeks before the election to make sure that nobody could accuse them of doing anything that might help Trump win, including doing their jobs by reporting negatively on Joe Biden, that they were just looking for an excuse, any excuse, and the CIA gave them one and they grabbed it. And in your article about the Russian bounties, you actually pointed out a brand new example of this on the exact same day that the Russian bounty story collapsed. So Biden administration acknowledges that the Russian bounty story basically is false. On that same day, the Treasury Department puts out a press release and there's one sentence where they claim that Konstantin Kalimnik, who was a starring character in the Russiagate collusion fantasies, I think basically because he's actually one of the few people in the Trump orbit who has a Russian passport. But anyway, this Treasury press release says that uh, they're sanctioning Kalimnik and they claim all of a sudden something that Robert Mueller didn't claim and the Senate Intelligence Committee didn't claim that Kalimnik is a uh, Russian intelligence officer who passed polling data to the Russian government, supposedly for use in their sweeping and sophisticated uh, interference campaign. Now, it's one sentence. There's no evidence. All of the efforts to investigate this claim before by Mueller and the Senate produced no evidence, and they acknowledge that in the reports. These reports also uh, had some evidence, but didn't focus enough on the fact that Kalimnik is actually a valuable source for the West. He was a translator for Ukrainians and talking to U.S. officials in Ukraine. He provided information that was used by U.S. diplomats and he spoke often with them. All that was either ignored or downplayed. And there's a lot of other countervailing information about Klimnik that I've written about and I'll be doing more soon. But anyway, regardless of the facts of him, this one sentence was then used as proof that all of the conspiracy theories about Trump-Russia collusion and specifically Kalimnik's role were true. 
the Trump campaign chairman gave a Russian intelligence officer the Trump campaign's internal strategy and polling data. That Russian intelligence officer then gave it to his bosses in the Russian intelligence agencies. And that presumably must have been very helpful to the Russian intelligence agencies in their concerted contemporaneous efforts to target their attacks on our election to the maximum benefit of candidate Donald Trump. Uh, the, the chain here is the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, and his deputy chairman are giving polling data and strategic information about their strategy in the Midwest to Kalimnik, who the deputy chairman acknowledges they knew was a spy or they believed was a spy. Uh, and in fact, as the Treasury Department has acknowledged, was a spy uh, and was providing this to Russian intelligence and not just Russian intelligence, but the same services that are involved in trying to help Trump win in that election. Uh, that's what most people would call collusion. Look, you know, Aaron, I mean, I there, there aren't many people who have a lower opinion of establishment liberal journalists than I do. You may be one of them, although I think we're probably you know, more or less at the same place with that. So it's very hard for them to do anything that that shocks me in a negative way. But that did. <laughs> the Treasury Department called it a press release, right? They didn't even purport that it was something more elevated. You know, it, they said it's a press release. They were announcing sanctions. And, as in, in, and in passing, to justify the sanctions, they made this assertion about passing polling data to Russian intelligence officials that, as you say, an 18-month investigation with unlimited resources, armless subpoena power couldn't demonstrate. And I watched immediately journalists like Chris Hayes and many others see that press release and then instantly treat it, that claim, as true. You know, Chris Hayes snidely went onto Twitter and said, oh, yeah, there's no collusion. All that happened is that, you know— um, the Russians helped the Trump campaign, and then Paul Manafort turned around and gave the Russian intelligence agency through Kalimnik polling data. He had no basis for saying that happened other than the fact that the, the Treasury Department in a press release asserted it in one sentence with no evidence, and yet his brain instantly told him he should treat that as true and like report it as though it had happened. How, how can you do that? How can you look at a government press release and encourage everybody to treat the assertion in it as being a proven fact when you haven't even seen any evidence for it and when an actual investigation turned up nothing. And, you know, it's we're at the point where they have no standards. They are absolute partners to the U.S. government and to the intelligence agencies. If the intelligence agencies tell them that Donald Trump is being controlled by, you know, Martians hiding underground, they will instantly report that is true without needing any corroboration. They just, they're, 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 they're parrots for what these intelligence agencies tell them to think and say to the point that even if they call it a press release and don't even purport to, you know, prove it, they'll just march and, and, and forward and, and start talking about it like it was true. It was amazing to watch them do that in mass and not one of them ever said, wait a minute, why are we assuming this happened when the government hasn't yet? Maybe it did happen. Maybe the government has evidence for it. But until they show it, we shouldn't be acting as though they've proven it. That's just so basic to journalism. And they just no longer have that instinct at all. It's just dead and suffocated. And I, 
I noted this in your article. I saw this in your article. I think you're too generous in saying that even maybe it's true because there's so much countervailing evidence about Kalimnik that he was a valued uh, Western source that that Rick Gates, who was Mueller's key witness for this claim about the polling data, told Mueller, as Rick Gates told me in an interview and he said elsewhere on CNN. Is it not possible that they took the internal campaign data that you provided and used it to interfere in the election? Well, first, let me say about the campaign data, and there's been a lot of misinformation uh, over the last three years about that specific data. And just to be clear, and for the first time hearing it from me, that campaign data in, in most cases was dated and it was called top line data. That is simply that it has Trump 50%, Clinton 48%. There was no specific uh, uh, detailed data about any of those polls. It was a combination of some internal polling on specific states, as well as a lot of public data that was shared. And in most cases, it was sent several days after the fact. Uh, that information was given to Constantine to provide information to people in Ukraine. Uh, I was never led to believe that it was going to anybody other than the two people that yeah. uh, he specified. And I took him at his word for that. That Rick Gates told Mueller that the reason Kalimnik was told to pass on some polling data was, first of all, it wasn't even sensitive polling data. It was basically from real clear politics like Trump 51, Clinton 49. But, but, but before you go on with that, that point, which I think you're making a, an important point, but like what, what is that even sensitive polling data? How is polling data sensitive? Like it's classified top secret, like it's treason to to pass on polling data showing which are the swing key swing. How is that sensitive? Well, they're that saying they're saying that it's internal. So but go ahead. They're saying that it's private polling data that the public couldn't have. But actually, we're, we're, Rick Gates, who was the one who told the Mueller team about the polling data, he told them that it was from real clear politics. It was like, you know, Trump 51, Clinton 49 in Michigan or something like that. And that the reason why Manafort wanted Kalimnik to send that, not even to Russians, but to Ukrainians, was because he wanted to show them that, that you know, his boy was in the race and he was valuable and that he, because he wanted money. That's what Manafort is about. Mueller team downplayed that. They mentioned that, but they downplay it. And everyone pretends as if the it's some mystery as to why this was happening. So the only witness who, upon which all these claims are based, has a reason for it, but yet all of that gets ignored. And then you have these uh, attempts to make the claim and they they refuse to say any evidence. So let me just read to you. I, uh, I wrote Treasury and I asked them, what is the evidence for this? I didn't get a response. I wrote them five times, didn't, didn't hear back. But somebody leaked something to NBC News, a reliable vehicle for Russiagate disinformation. And uh, the first sentence is, the US intelligence community has developed new information about Konstantin Kalimnik whom they call a Russian spy, that leads them to believe the associate of ex-Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort passed internal Trump campaign polling and strategy information to Russian intelligence services, to U.S. officials say. So it's not even that they have evidence that he did. They have information that they say leads them to believe that he did that. So they're actually acknowledging there that they don't even have the evidence. And then they go on to say uh, that they will not disclose when or how the U.S. came into possession of the new intelligence about Kalimnik, including whether or not the information was developed during the Trump or Biden administrations. The officials did not identify the source or type of intelligence that had been developed. So basically, here's this claim. We're not going to tell you anything about it. And on your point about the polling data itself, I mean, look, 
even if it was sensitive internal Trump campaign polling data, which Rick Gates says it was not, what's it supposed to be used for? The sweeping Russian social media campaign that barely had any ads and most of them weren't even about the election and featured things like buff Bernie. It's like the 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 theory itself is so ludicrous, but yet all of its various uh, aspects are treated as documented fact. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I feel vindicated that I did allude to the possibility that you may be one of the only people who have a lower regard <laughs> for these media organs than I. And the fact that you're accusing me of being too generous to them, I think, <laughs> is good proof of that since I've never I don't think I've ever been accused of that previously. Um, but no, you're right. You know, I mean, look, I don't think you I, in general, you can't prove a negative. Right. You cannot prove that this didn't happen. Though you're right that all of the evidence that's available militates against this narrative compared to no, literally no evidence in support of its having happened and the fact that Mueller for 18 months never unearthed any evidence that suggests that it did happen and in fact unearthed evidence that it didn't, which is what you just summarized, you know, further demonstrates how corrupt these, these journalists are. For and, and, you know, I think a lot of it is just sloth. I don't think they really know the details of the collusion theory or Russiagate or the Mueller investigation. I really don't think they know it on a granular level or even on like a substantive level. They know it on the broadest strokes. They just believe that it happened. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with with why Charlie Savage continues to defend the story, because his reputation and his name is so invested in it that. It, there's almost no evidence you could show him that will get him off the view that the New York Times reported this properly and correctly. The idea that Trump and the Russians colluded was something that MSNBC and, and CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times went all in on. They gave themselves Pulitzers for reporting that supported this theory that was designed to foster it. And so... I don't think that a lot of these journalists, especially whose careers depend on pleasing a liberal audience like Chris Hayes's, like the Chris Hayes's of the world, the, 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 the possibility that they could acknowledge that this wasn't true doesn't, it doesn't even exist for them. It would be career ending. Imagine if Chris Hayes went on Twitter or his show and said, you know, I don't think, I think we should have a lot of doubt about these new pronouncements about collusion and the evidence that's available actually undermines the collusion theory, not supports it. You would hear the sounds of, you know, resistance liberals clicking off MSNBC so fast that I doubt Chris Hayes's show would be able to be on the air for, you know, like weeks. Um, and all of these incentives are constantly at play. And then you have the added social media incentive of the group think that's fostered. The, you know, you go, I think that tweet that I mentioned that Chris posted, I, he was just the first one I saw. You know, it went predictably viral. A few thousand people retweeted it. Probably 10,000 people or more liked it because he was declaring, oh, look, the collusion theory just got proven by a press release from the Treasury Department that has no evidence and that is contradicted by all the available evidence. And those are rewards like dopamine gets sent to the brain. He feels like, you know, he's doing something that's increasing his popularity. And so it's just a kind of constant reward system that keeps them affirming things and they don't really care any longer whether it's true or not. Um, they care about those incentives, not because they're even consciously corrupt, but because that's how the human brain functions. And, you know, ironically, I think I've, we talked about this before, 
But one of the best books describing the dynamic that I just referenced was actually written by Chris himself in 2011 called Twilight of the Elite before he got his MSNBC show. And he wrote a book that the theme of which was no matter how smart you are, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how much integrity or no matter how many principles you have, if you immerse yourself in an elite institution, inevitably, inevitably, it will co-opt you. You will see the world through the blinders that they want you to wear. So opted to punish people who dissent and reward those who submit that almost no human brain is capable of resisting that unless you remove yourself from it. And he has become exhibit A for the truth of the thesis in the book that he wrote. It sounds like the kind of people who are who fall into cults like QAnon. And that's why I call those who peddle in Russiagate disinformation Blue Anon. It has a similar incentive structure. It's comforting, helps explain reality. It has benefits. You're a part of something, helps explain a very complicated world. And it require it allows you to disengage from reality, uh, which I think many people are trying to escape. Um, I think for all the all the disparaging of QAnon members, I think there's some psychological projection going on. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, obviously, if you say to people in media that Rachel Maddow and you know Wolf Blitzer and Don Lemon and Joe Scarborough and, 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 and Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell are the functional equivalents of QAnon. They'll say that's absolutely crazy. QAnon believes these, you know, insane deranged conspiracy theories. What is more deranged <laughs> than the view that the Russians had seized control of the American government and the levers of power through sexual and financial blackmail over the president? It's like the kind of movie script that Hollywood would reject on the grounds that it's just too wildly, you know, fictitious to even try and convince people to pay attention for 90 minutes. And yet that's what they've been peddling for the longest time. And they do so in a way that's much more deleterious because they have a larger audience in QAnon. They have the credibility of these corporate institutions that carry with it a certain respect and credibility and elite circles that obviously QAnon lacks. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right about the psychological and cultural incentives. Like one of the benefits of QAnon is exactly what you said, which is it gives people a sense of community and belonging at a time when citizens in the United States lack that more than ever before. There was, you know, even before the pandemic, there were all these warning signs blinking red your father obviously has done amazing work on exactly this uh, dynamic that modern society is not giving human beings what we need, what our brains are constructed to require, like oxygen or water, which is a sense of belonging, a sense of community. We're all atomized. We're all, you know, uh, the, the secularization of Western democracies means we don't have religion any longer. We don't have spirituality. We have no way to understand and navigate the universe. That's why even before the pandemic, you had things like addiction and depression and anxiety disorders and suicide all radically increasing. And then you add on to that the pandemic where we constantly have the fear of death and sickness and we're isolated from one another more than ever before. And so there is this craving to kind of, you know, have theories that give purpose and meaning and 
conspiracy theories do that. It creates communities around which we can, you know, kind of bond with other people. And I absolutely think that's a big part of what explains QAnon. But I also think it's a big part of what explains, you know, the similar uh, dependence on conspiracy theories and unified theories of purpose that these cable networks to great profit for themselves have been peddling as well. And all these theories have the added benefit for the people who run this country of avoiding the real power centers. You know, in the case of QAnon, it's whatever all their deranged conspiracy theories are. In the case of Blue Anon, it's Russian oligarchs instead of U.S. oligarchs. And that's why I think it um, helps explain its spread because it's actually it doesn't threaten anyone actually in power. And really, the focus on all these insane conspiracy theories benefits people in power. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the reasons why I talk about Chris or Rachel is because I've known them for a very long time. I've known them personally. You know, I was on their shows a decade ago. I know exactly what their intellectual and journalistic political trajectory um, has been. But, you know, even taking a, a step back from those individuals, if you look at liberal and left wing journalism for a long time, it was focused, you know, primarily on things like the evil of the CIA or the menace posed by concentrated wealth in Wall Street or the military industrial complex. You go and look at any liberal digital outlet, BuzzFeed, the kind of BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, Vox, Vice, Axis, or what journalists do who work at those liberal cable outlets, MSNBC and CNN, and you will find that they talk about those entities almost never, almost never. There's no reporting on any of those power centers because they don't regard them as malevolent. To the extent they talk about them, it's to disseminate their propaganda. It's to have John Brennan on and treat him like, you know, a wise Socrates who deciphers the world for us. Or they peddle CIA, you know, manufactured stories like Hunter Biden's doc laptop is Russian disinformation or the Russians have put bounties on the heads of American soldiers. That's the only time they pay attention to those power centers is to serve them and disseminate their propaganda. They're obsessed instead with wild conspiracy theories and with depicting ordinary private citizens as the real enemies, as the real threats because of the wrong political views or wrong political ideologies they've embraced. And this transformation has been very rapid within liberal and, and even left-wing journalistic circles where they pay almost no attention any longer to actual power. And I, I think you're absolutely right that the biggest beneficiaries of these obsessions on wild conspiracy theories and P-tapes and you know, Putin and all of that is that we don't pay attention to who wields power for real in the United States and how that power expresses itself and how it's uh, concentrated in the hands of a very few, uh, small number of people. 